WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Nutrients are essential to plant and animal life, but like many things, too much of good thing can lead to problems. For example, in the Great Lakes, there are numerous nutrients that scientists can analyze. Today we're talking to Quercus Hamlin. Quercus, may you please introduce yourself and your research to us? Hi, so I'm Quercus Hamlin. I am a PhD student in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. I recently finished my master's degree with the same advisor, Dr. Heinemann. And this work that I'll be talking about today has been going on for about the last four or five years for me. And really, we're talking about these nutrients that, like Chelsea said, too much of a, a good thing can be a problem. And humans have altered how nutrients cycle. And with that, we've ended up with water quality problems. You might have heard of Lake Erie having harmful algal blooms. So nutrients make plants grow, and when you end up with too many of them in the water, you can have very intense plant growth with algae. Not only is this ugly, but it can cause fish to die and can be harmful to humans and animals. So my work is about mapping these nutrient inputs, so asking where do nutrients come from on the landscape, and then how do they get to the water in order for us to learn about how we can make changes and what to expect in our future. Thanks for joining us today, Quarkus. First of all, congratulations on earning your master's. In terms of your research, what nutrients does your laboratory study, and where do these nutrients come from? So the nutrients we're talking about here are the chemical elements nitrogen and phosphorus. There's also potassium, which is also a nutrient. We're talking about the elements nitrogen and phosphorus. Nitrogen is found in the air as nitrogen gas, and phosphorus is mined from rocks. However, although they've always been there and part of the building blocks of life, humans have changed how they cycle within the environment. For example, in the 1800s, the Haber-Bosch process was created to take nitrogen out of the air and into a form usable by plants and fertilizer. Phosphorus has been mined from rocks and moved throughout the landscape in that way. So we've ended up with a lot more nitrogen phosphorus on our landscape and in our waters than was normally there before. That is true that nitrogen and phosphorus are usually related to fertilizers. Now, how does this relate to your research with the Great Lakes? The Great Lakes have water quality problems from the nutrients, but something we don't know is where all these nutrients started. We know generally farmers use fertilizer. We also know that nutrients are coming from human waste and things like septic tanks and wastewater treatment plants. We don't have a map of exactly how much came from where. The reason for this is that it's non-point source pollution. It's happening all over the landscape and isn't something you can go out and measure. So the work that I've been doing is about creating a map around the period of 2010 of how much nitrogen and phosphorus came from different sources and was added to the landscape. With that, we can look at the processes of how it got to the Great Lakes and begin to ask questions about how to change these inputs on the landscape to see effects in the water. You know, you bring up a really good point that it must be really difficult to try and determine where the origins of these nutrients are coming from, considering there's probably more than just a single point along the Lake Erie shoreline that these nutrients are being run off from. Does this mean that you go to different points along Lake Erie and measure how much of the nutrients are in the water? Or are you doing something else? So you've described the end point. So people do go and measure the concentrations of the nutrients coming into the water across the Great Lakes. But what they don't know is where those nutrients came from. You might have a high concentration of nitrogen, but was that from Farmer Joe? Was it from the wastewater treatment plant? 
where in the watershed was it from? We don't know any of that. And so the point of this work is to use data that we do know. So we know things about what type of crops are grown. We have satellite imagery that's been classified to show this. So we can look at a map and say, all right, there's corn here. We know things about where people live, which can tell us about you know human waste. And we can put these different data sources together to talk about where nutrients started on the landscape in order to learn about how they got through the landscape. How did they go through groundwater? How did they go through streams? And then end up at the coast where you can measure the concentration. You're right. It's really important to understand the origin of where these nutrients are coming from. Though you had mentioned that you're using satellite imaging. I think of like Google Maps whenever you put on satellite imagery. However, I'm wondering, is that what you use? Or do you use a different software to obtain these satellite imaging? Satellite products are really the the baseline of our work, and it's important to understand how that happens. We use data from a satellite called Landsat. This is run by both NASA and the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey. So Landsat takes imagery at 30 by 30 meter pixel sizes, meaning that on a single football field, about 100 yards, you would have three pixels. Compared to something like Google Maps, where you can zoom in and see someone's car, you know, on the order of a few feet. So we work at this unit of this 30 by 30 meter pixel, and that's really high resolution in terms of nutrient work, because people are usually trying to quantify things over a whole watershed or, you know, in a county. Working with the satellite imagery allows us to take a closer look at the landscape and use products that are already created. So people in the government and people in academia have created maps of land use. So we can look at these pixels and say, oh, this one's agriculture, this one's a road, and this one's forest. And we can also know about the crops in these things. So we can know where corn is and soy is and use these as resources within our mapping work. That's interesting, but I feel like you're not getting the whole picture, actually, whenever you're just looking at satellite imagery. Are you also inspecting other wavelengths of light that you can use a satellite to study the surface of the Earth to try and be able to determine where these nutrient runoffs are happening? Or is it only in the visible light spectrum? In our work, we're only using the visible light spectrum, and we're using maps that have been already classified. At this point in the work, we're not talking about the actual physical processes of, you know, how did it move into the stream or the slope of the landscape. This isn't the level of this work yet. Really, we're trying to have a a budget, you know, say, we go to this spot, how much was put here? How much fertilizer? How many septic tanks? Something like that. And so later stages of the work are talking about that routing, you know, how did it get into the stream? How did it move through a stream? And that things that might use products from other satellites. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying that for me, Quarkus. I really appreciate that. So it's the end of the year now, and it's getting pretty chilly. And I know that a lot of people who do field work usually don't do it around this time. However, you don't necessarily need to go into the field. You're using satellite imagery, like you said. During the winter, though, there's a lot of snow, and that might be really hard to image with a satellite. Are you still conducting these studies on the winter? And if you do, how would you be able to monitor water since it's technically frozen in the winter? Great question. That brings up the temporal resolution of the work we're doing. At this point, the season doesn't really matter. We're talking about an annual average. And when we use the satellite imagery, it's a product that's already been created by either NASA or another group. So they've taken the images from across the whole year and used that to determine in the year what type of land use, what type of crop. But this temporal resolution is important, and you bring up a good point. How are we going to know those different dynamics within a season when we just have an annual time step? 
It sounds like this project has been going on for about as long as there have been satellites up in space orbiting around the Earth. How long has this particular project been going on, and have there been any public documents that have been produced to help local farmers in the area? Our work focuses on 2010. We've taken a snapshot of about 2007 to 2015 using different types of data to build it. Our current project, which is called SenseMap, the Spatially Explicit Nutrient Source Estimate Map, has been focused on the 2010 time period. We've taken one snapshot of nutrients. We're working on expanding this to go back in time to ask questions about how nutrients have changed and how did we get here. As far as the public documents, that's something we're really trying to make an impact with. The work has been funded by something called the Tipping Points Planner. It's a multi-institutional group that has created a tool that allows community groups to look at their watershed or look at their county and understand what kind of things are happening and how to change their management to look at what's happening in their watershed and help them change their management decisions. Hopefully these local community groups are able to benefit from this tool that your laboratory has been in partnership in developing. Something I'm thinking a lot about is the geology of the local area as well, because it's not enough to just consider whether or not the fertilizer is being run off on the surface, but sometimes that fertilizer can definitely seep into the ground and maybe interact with the groundwater. I'm curious, does the groundwater migrate also into the same direction as Lake Erie, for example, or is there more information that needs to be determined to understand the geology of the Great Lakes Basin? I'm glad you bring up groundwater. I work out of the hydrogeology lab, which is basically the fancy term for groundwater, um, and we think a lot about this. This is something that isn't always considered when people are thinking about nutrients and nutrient budgets. You want to measure runoff and you want to see what's the stream concentration, but people aren't always thinking about that slow-moving groundwater beneath us that is taking both the nitrogen and phosphorus to the streams, which will eventually go to the coast. One thing about groundwater is it's really variable. You can have groundwater that might enter the landscape and take one year to get to a stream, five years, 30 years, even 100 years, all within the Michigan's Lower Peninsula. So with this variable transport, with this variable travel time, it's important to think about that the things we do today will affect the future. It's an idea of a legacy. We're still feeling the impacts of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. That nitrogen is still moving through the groundwater. Something I've been thinking about like this whole episode are those algal blooms that you had mentioned early on. We actually haven't discussed algal blooms before on the Sci-Files. Could you please explain what they are and how they would affect the life around? Sure. The basic idea of these algae blooms is the fact that imagine dumping a ton of fertilizer in the water. Whatever plants are there are going to grow out of control or not necessarily out of control, but they're going to grow a lot. Just like the idea of putting fertilizer on your lawn allows your grass to grow, and putting fertilizer on crops allows the crops to grow bigger. So you end up with all these nutrients. The algae grows, and it can sometimes grow to even coat an entire surface of a street of a lake. You might have seen just this green covering a lake. So fish kills are another effect of harmful algae blooms. There are two causes of this, one being the toxins that the algae have, and another being the fact that when the algae die, the decomposition process uses all the available oxygen, creating hypoxic environments that life can no longer survive in. There's just simply so much algae and so little oxygen that they can no longer survive. As far as other life, some of this algae creates toxins. Places like Toledo along Lake Erie get their water from the lake. But if there's too much algae, these toxins are in the water and are not able to be filtered by wastewater treatment plants, leading to things like the tap water ban in 2014. 
coming back to the primary focus of your research, could you talk a little bit about some of these inputs that you're actually gathering? Are you communicating with local agencies or farmers on how much of the nutrients that they're actually using in their plants? Or is this something that you find online? So at the scale we work at across the entire Great Lakes Basin, it's really too hard to go out and survey everybody in the field, you know, asking farmers such this. But we do have different types of data available online about these processes. For example, the USGS, which I mentioned before, a geological survey, has put together a model saying how much fertilizer was used in each county. So just say in Ingham County, there was 10,000 tons of fertilizer. That's at a county scale resolution, but I was talking about this, you know, sub football field resolution. And that's where we combine different types of data to get at that. So we say, all right, this county has X amount of fertilizer. How do we break it up and put it in different parts of the county? And so this is the thing about our product is an estimate. It's not saying we can go out to Joe's field and know how much fertilizer he has, but we can say across the county, this is one way that the fertilizer could have been broken up. And we break it up based on the type of crops because we do know that. So we can say that a cornfield had more of this county's fertilizer applied than a soy field, which wouldn't have had fertilizer. Some of the other inputs that we use for different sources like septic tanks might be things like the U.S. Census, how many people lived in an area, or information that states collect, such as where his drinking water wells are. Are there policies in place that help control the concentration or amount of fertilizer that farmers are using? Because let's say that you notice in your data that there's a specific county that uses a lot of fertilizer that is harmfully impacting the Great Lakes. Are there maybe laws in place that could help prevent that? In this country, people don't take so well to being told what to do about their business. So regulations and fertilizer are not really effective here. There's people in other countries, like in the Netherlands, where there are regulations. In the U.S., we have things called best management practices, or BMPs. So the ag extension and policymakers can suggest things and hope that these rates of fertilizer are applied, but there aren't actually laws or consequences of how farmers use their fields. And I also, I don't want to get too hard on the farmers. You know, they have a business. They're trying to grow food at a low cost and that food feeds us. So this isn't about, you know, telling what the farmers what to do, but thinking about how we can collectively manage our landscape better and avoid some of these problems. Yeah, no kidding on that idea that people don't like being told what to do. I'm happy that your work has contributed a lot to providing an important resource for the Great Lakes region. Thanks again for coming to talk to us about your work and good luck with the rest of your PhD. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be on board. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.